Some of the most successful record companies headed by African Americans over the last century were started right here in the greatest city in the world. Today we're discussing Chicago's black-owned record labels, part one. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. That's right, I said part one, and here's why. Before I started really researching this episode, I figured I'd have to stretch it to make this into a full episode, but I quickly discovered I was very, very wrong. Over the years, there have been many black-owned record labels in Chicago, so this episode and the part two episode will touch on just a few of them. Oh, as a teaser, the follow-up episode will focus primarily on Chicago's VJ Records, the most successful black-owned label before Motown Records was founded in Detroit, and will include a little help from my friend John F. Lyons, author of the book Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s. Standard disclaimer, for historical accuracy, I use terms for African Americans that were in use at the time of the stories, but only when quoting someone. Also, I'm going to be playing DJ today, giving you not only the history, but some snippets of songs, because it's kind of tough to talk about music stuff without giving you a little taste of the sound. By the early 1920s, the Great Migration was in full swing. Millions of African Americans left the South for the promise of better opportunities in the North, including Chicago. Some also brought their talents as musicians, and many brought their desire to listen to music from back home. Record sales in the late 19-teens had skyrocketed, and in 1921, gross revenues in the United States hit an all-time high with $106 million, comparable to $1.6 billion in today's money. An early indicator of the potential appeal of recorded music by an African-American was Down Home Blues, an early release by singer Ethel Waters on New York's Black Swan Records, the first black independent record label, which sold 500,000 copies in 1921. Here's a little of that. My man is with me. This time he's gone for sure. Broke my heart. How I'd love to break his face for letting that other woman ease into my place. As an in-house producer for OK Records, which also had success the previous year releasing recordings by African-American singer Mamie Smith, stated at the time, quote, There's 14 million Negroes in our great country, and they will buy records if recorded by one of their own, end quote. 1927 Chicago, the Buckingham Fountain opens, as does the Chicago Municipal Airport, which would become known as Chicago's Midway Airport some 22 years later. 1927 also saw the formation of Black Patty Records, headed by the Chicago Record Company owner J. Mayo, Inc. Williams. Black Patty was the second independent black record label in the United States. J. Mayo Williams was born in Arkansas in 1894 and moved to Monmouth, Illinois, about 210 miles southwest of downtown Chicago, 
at the age of seven with his mother after his father was shot dead during an incident at a local railway station. Williams excelled at academics and football, and in 1916, he enrolled at Brown University, where he stood out as a star athlete. Returning to the Chicago area, J. Mayo Williams became one of the earliest African-American players in the NFL when he joined the Hammond Pros, a traveling team based in Hammond, Indiana, that played many of their games at Cubs Park, later known as Wrigley Field. Although the Hammond Pros only lasted until 1926, the team is notable not only for featuring six of the nine African-American players in the league during those days, but also for hiring the first African-American head coach in the NFL, Fritz Pollard, who attended high school at Chicago's Lane Tech at Western and Addison before also heading to Brown University. Even before ending his football career with the Hammond Pros, Williams had taken a position in Chicago with Paramount Records, promoting race records, as they were known back then, black music geared toward black listeners. Williams' responsibilities included recruiting talent and producing artists, making him the first African-American executive at a major record label. After a few years with Paramount Records, Williams decided to branch out on his own, forming Black Patty Records, naming it in honor of famed African-American opera singer Ciceretta Jones. Matilda Ciceretta Joyner Jones was an American soprano who was called the Black Patty in reference to Italian opera singer Adelina Patty. Jones was a huge star back in the day and would go on to be the first African-American woman to perform as a headliner at the Music Hall, later renamed Carnegie Hall, in New York in February of 1893. Ciceretta Jones was the highest-paid African-American performer of her time, appearing at Madison Square Garden, singing for four consecutive presidents, the British royal family, and at venues around the world. Jones first performed in Chicago in January of 1893 at Central Music Hall, once situated on the southeast corner of State and Randolph Streets, and later with the Black Patty Troubadours, an acrobatic act made up of 40 jugglers, dancers, comedians, and a chorus of 40 singers. One of her frequent stops in the late 19 aughts was the Schwartz Theater on South County Street and West Water Street in North Suburban Waukegan. I gotta say, the life of Ciceretta Jones sounds pretty amazing and, dare I say, deserving of a biopic. Sadly, no recordings exist of Jones singing. Ads began to appear for Black Patty Records in May of 1927 with the catalog of records including blues, jazz, sermons, spirituals, and more, primarily performed by black entertainers. Unfortunately, things do not appear to have gone well. After six months and 55 releases, Black Patty Records was shuttered. Those 55 releases, some pressed in quantities of 100 copies or fewer, are some of the most sought-after 78 RPM records in the world. At the beginning of the Great Depression, record revenues in the U.S. declined significantly, plummeting to an all-time low of $6 million in 1933 during the height of the Great Depression. I read reports of families burning records as a fuel source to stay warm during this, but could not find the source material to back that up. 
When the Great Depression hit, Mayo Williams got out of the record biz and taught football at Morehouse College in Atlanta for a few years before being brought back into the music industry with Decca Records in 1934. After retiring from Decca in 1946, Williams started the Chicago, Southern, and Ebony record labels, working with such artists as Muddy Waters, Oscar Brown, Bonnie Lee, Lil Hardin, Armstrong, and others. J. May Williams died on January 2, 1980, reportedly as plans were being made to conduct extensive interviews for his biography. In 2004, he was posthumously inducted into the Blues Foundation's Blues Hall of Fame. He is buried at Baroque Cemetery in Chicago, along with other notable African Americans, including civil rights figure Emmett Till, blues musician Willie Dixon, singer Dinah Washington, and others. By the mid-1950s, racist organizations began to push back against so-called black music, especially in the South. I'll have a picture up on social media of leaflets that were handed out primarily in the South that read, Notice. Stop. Help save the youth of America. Don't buy Negro records. If you don't want to serve Negroes in your place of business, then do not have Negro records on your jukebox or listen to Negro records on the radio. The screaming idiotic words and savage music of these records are undermining the morals of our white youth in America. Call the advertisers of your radio stations that play this type of music and complain to them. Don't let your children buy or listen to these Negro records. At the bottom of the leaflet, it read, For additional copies of the circular, write Citizens Council of Greater New Orleans, Inc. The White Citizens Council, WCC, was an American white supremacist organization founded in 1954. After 1956, it was known as the Citizens Councils of America. I guess they thought taking out the word white might uh, make it a little less obvious. With about 60,000 members, mostly in the South, the group was outspoken in its opposition to racial integration during the 1950s and 1960s. Fortunately, in 1955, a 28-year-old performer from St. Louis named Chuck Berry was signed to Chicago's white-owned Chess Records, and in that summer, Barry's song Maybelline reached number five on the pop charts and number one on the R&B charts. Through Chuck Berry, Chess Records moved from the R&B genre into the mainstream. The color barrier, at least when it came to music, began to show a few cracks. One of the most popular African-American DJs in Chicago in the 1940s and 1950s was Al Benson, who was born in Jackson, Mississippi. Benson, born Al Leaner, worked up to 10 hours a day on three different radio stations around Chicago. One station, WGS, broadcast from high atop the West Town Bank building at 2400 West Madison Street. Now it's time for your old friend and swingmaster, Al Benson. Thank you, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Here I am, all ready and all set to bring to you 30 minutes of Red Hot Beat Me Down, bring you up string tunes of today. And now it's on with the show. Benson would go on to start record labels, own a newspaper, a record shop, restaurants, and more, all primarily staffed by African Americans. More on Al Benson in next week's Part 2 episode. 
In the early 1950s, Al Benson gave a loan to his nephews, George and Ernie Leaner, two brothers who came to Chicago from Mississippi. The Leaner brothers formed United Record Distributors in March of 1950, considered to be the first black-owned record distributor in the United States. By hiring a black staff and focusing on getting the music of African Americans on local record labels into the hands of black DJs around the U.S., United Record Distributors quickly got noticed. Other record companies and distributors began hiring more black personnel to better compete in those markets. In early 1962, George Leaner launched Wonderful Records. There is a hyphen between one and Derful, which shared a building with United Record Distributors at 1827 South Michigan Avenue, part of Chicago's famed Record Row. The building also had a studio, Tone Recordings, which lists musicians like Lonnie Brooks, Syl Johnson, Mighty Joe Young, and the Jackson 5 as having recorded there. George Leaner wanted to build a company with what we would now call hard soul artists, which he felt had been neglected by other Chicago labels. Leaner built an artist roster that included Otis Clay, Betty Everett, Johnny Sales, Dorothy Prince, and others. The first release on the wonderful label was McKinley Mitchell's The Town I Live In. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. That release made it to number eight on the R&B charts. The following year, the five do tones, yes, there is a hyphen between do and tones, version of Shake a Tail Feather. Reached number 51 on the Billboard Top 100 and number 28 on the Hot R&B Singles Chart. July of 1964 saw the release of the duets, more hyphens, Please Forgive Me, which got a nice write-up in the industry trade magazine Cashbox, which wrote in their August 1st, 1964 issue, quote, The crew pulls out all the stops on this quick-paced, hard-driving, hand-clapping bluser with an interesting, rapidly changing beat, end quote. With the company starting off strong, George Leaner expanded the number of record labels under Wonderful, adding Midas, M-Pac, with a hyphen, Marvelous, 
It's marvelous with two hyphens there. And Halo, no hyphen needed for gospel recordings. Although the various labels under Wonderful had some initial success, there were complaints from the label's artists that royalties weren't being paid, and the label folded in 1968. Many of the Wonderful releases are available on streaming services. Long before performers like Prince and Kanye West sought control of their recordings, Chicago-born Curtis Mayfield created the template on how to do so. Curtis Mayfield was born at the Cook County Hospital on June 3, 1942, one of five children. After Mayfield's father left the family when Curtis was five, his mother and maternal grandmother moved the family around Chicago, eventually setting into the Cabrini-Green housing project during Curtis's teen years. When he was 10, he received his first guitar, starting him on a lifetime of performing. While still a teenager, he and some friends formed a group called The Impressions. With The Impressions, Mayfield was writing hit singles and getting noticed. A sign he was wise beyond his years, in 1960 he firmed Kurtom Publishing with his friend and manager Eddie Thomas, using the first syllable of Curtis and Thomas to create the name. Mayfield wrote hit songs for Jerry Butler on Chicago's VJ Records, including He Will Break Your Heart. He don't love you like I love you. If he did, he wouldn't break your heart. Mayfield also wrote the Butler releases Find Another Girl and I'm a Tellin' You. In 1965, Mayfield penned the impression's biggest hit, People Get Ready. People get ready, there's a train a-coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. People Get Ready reached number three on the Billboard R&B chart and number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. It has been covered by Bob Marley and the Whalers, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, and others. Rolling Stone magazine called People Get Ready the 24th greatest song of all time. Following Kurtom Publishing, in March of 1968, Curtis Mayfield and Eddie Thomas created Kurtom Records as an independently distributed label. The new company's motto was, We're a winner the title of one of the impression's last big hits on ABC Records. By June of 1968, Kurtom distribution started going through Buddha Records, a New York independent run in part by Neil Bogart, who within a few years would sign the rock band Kiss to his Casablanca Records label and would be prominent in the rise of disco with acts like Donna Summer and the Village People. The first release on Kurtom Records was in November of 1968 with the impressions This Is My Country, which included the title track as well as Fool For You. But I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool Fool For You went to number three and lasted 12 weeks on Billboard Soul Charts. In 1970, Curtis Mayfield went solo, releasing his first album, titled Curtis, on his Kurtom label. Possibly the most recognizable song from this record, clocking in at nearly nine minutes, was Move On Up. Move on up. 
Just move on up Toward your destination Though you may find From time to time Complication Instead of the smooth R&B sound of the impressions, Mayfield's solo work had a harder edge to it, paired with a social commentary that fit the times. He would later say, quote, There were some things I had long wanted to do, but they were out of the category of what was expected of me in the impressions. When I got off in the Curtis album, it allowed me to be more personal for myself. End quote. Mayfield released two more albums in the next two years before recording the soundtrack to the black action film Superfly about a drug pusher. Mayfield and his band also appear in the film. Oh, Superfly, you're gonna make your fortune by and by. But if you lose, don't ask no questions why. The only game you know is do or die. The album sold over a million units and was a number one record on the Billboard charts. Mayfield also became a crossover artist, appealing to both black and white audiences, at least when it came to buying records. As a live performer, promoters discovered white rock fans still would not attend shows featuring black acts in the early 1970s. When they booked Mayfield into Chicago's Uptown Aragon Theater, the show was a flop. 1973's Back to the World did not sell as well, but still was certified gold with 500,000 copies sold, owing in part to the single Future Shock. We got to stop Along the way, Kirtom Records released music from The Five Stair Steps, Baby Huey and the Babysitters, Donny Hathaway, and Holly Maxwell. In an August 1974 Billboard magazine interview, Curtis Mayfield's manager Marv Stewart said that Kirtom Records had Chicago's only 24-track studio, its own building, seven full producers, 12 writers and 5 artists under contract. The $250,000 studio with two staff engineers was available to the label's artists and producers 24 hours a day. Stewart claimed, quote, If anybody on the roster gets a song idea in the middle of the night, they can be in the studio working it out on tape within an hour. End quote. Chicago-born gospel singer Mavis Staples, who sang lead in her family's group The Staples Singers, recorded the soundtrack to Let's Do It Again, a film directed by the late, great Sidney Poitier and starring Poitier and Bill Cosby in just two days in 1975 for Kurt Records. Let's do it in the morning Sweet breeze in the summertime Feel your sweet face All laid up next to mine Sweet love in the midnight Good sleep The 
title track written by Curtis Mayfield reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and stayed on the charts for 18 weeks. By the late 1970s, music preferences leaned toward disco and Curtis Mayfield struggled to adapt. Singer Linda Clifford had a hit in 1978 on Kurt Tom Records with If My Friends Could See Me Now. wasn't enough to sustain the label, and Mayfield shut down operations in 1980 before moving to Atlanta. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Chicago's Black-Owned Record Labels, Part 1. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. I have a list of all the music included in today's episode on the Chicago History Podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com. I also have links to books as well as other related items. If you or someone you know is a history nerd like me, would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, pal. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at angelizeartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.